Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I am your host, Massimo Filiucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Gellif. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? On today's episode, we're going to take a look at a phrase that's come up quite a bit recently in public debate over the compatibility between science and religion, and that's the term accommodationist. It's a label that gets applied to people who argue that either a scientific worldview is compatible with a religious one, or that, at the very least, science can't fully disprove religion. Massimo, do you want to give some examples of the, the people who you feel best characterize the sort of group of, of accommodationists and the, their counterparts, the anti-accommodationists? Yeah, it's a, it's a complex landscape. Right. Um, and uh, I think it's rather easy to, to identify some of the characters, the main characters that have been part of this debate. So people like Chris Mooney, for instance, uh, who is an atheist, but who has uh, very recently, for instance, gotten money for the, from the Templeton Foundation, for some of his writings, which is a controversial thing in and of itself. As you know, the Templeton Foundation is this uh, large organization that gives a lot of money to scientists who, shall we say, write favorably about religion. That's not the way they put it. They, they, their money is supposed to be furthering the scientific understanding of science. Uh, in reality, they've been given the, the Templeton Prize, which is hefted in the Nobel Prize at this point, um, and a series of grants. Uh, that's what Mooney got, uh, a grant, not, not the prize. Uh, two scientists or writers who are sort of more or less sympathetic toward a reconciliation between science and religion. So, so Mooney has been um, accused of being an accommodationist. John Wilkins, who is a philosopher of science, has also been explicitly accused of being an accommodationist. I am being accused of being uh, in the same category. And I'm guessing that people like uh, Eugenie Scott at the National Center for Science Education will fall into that category as well. Then there are people like Ken Miller, my colleague at, uh, at Brown University, who has been uh, you know, a prominent uh, fighter against intelligent design and, and other forms of creationism, he couldn't really be a, uh, accused of being an accommodationist because he's in fact a Catholic. He's not an atheist, so he's, he obviously he's on the other side of that of that um, uh, the, the debate. Um, and then there is the uh, side that is represented by, by what I would call the purists uh, in this in this arena, which I think definitely include uh, Jerry Coyne, who is an evolutionary biologist, biologist at the University of Chicago. Uh, P.C. Myers of the Farangular uh, blog, and uh, I would think Richard Dawkins. I don't think that Dawkins himself has actually entered the fray directly. Uh, a lot of people on his website has, have commented um, on this, but I think it's fair from Dawkins' writings and from his appearances uh, over the last two or three years to put him in the, certainly closer to the purist side than, than the accommodationist side. I don't think anybody would accuse Dawkins of being an accommodationist, uh, for sure. So that's the landscape, I think, more or less. So uh, what do the purists say that you think is, is fundamentally misguided in this debate? Well, the best examples of that are, in fact, I think Dawkins himself, and particularly Jerry Coyne. Um, uh, it seems like the, the um, position that the purists are taking is that science 
is sufficient to debunk or disprove or reject uh, religious claims. Now, of course, Dawkins wrote the God um, Delusion, in which he explicitly says at the beginning of the book that science is capable of rejecting the God hypothesis. Now, he did put a caveat in there. Uh, if you actually read the book carefully, um, he says, well, I'm not an atheist, as in I know 100% that there is no God, I'm, but I'm pretty close to that, and the reason I'm pretty close to that is because of my understanding of science. So it, got, it comes as close as possible to sort of a purist position. Jerry Coyne uh, has come up with these examples that, that squarely put him into the, uh, the purist camp. Uh, for instance, uh, recently he's written about this, this, thing, uh, this idea of the 900-foot Jesus. Um, he, he says, look, it is silly to think that science cannot reject Religious claims, because you know, frankly, if we if we were all of a sudden to uh, to witness a 900 foot tall Jesus walking down the streets of London, uh, it would be really idiotic to maintain atheism at that point. You would have empirical evidence um, of uh, of you know some kind of supernatural uh, process. Um, and it, those kind of positions, both the the Dawkins idea that science can in fact reject religious claims, broadly speaking. And the uh, coin idea that, of course, there could be evidence in favor of the supernatural that we could examine empirically, I find very epistemologically naive, very philosophically naive. Okay, let me just quickly uh, make a distinction between um, religious claims that of, of some kind of God or supernatural power that doesn't interact with our world, and then specific religious claims about phenomena that that are theoretically observable, like miracles that occur or um, the uh, effectiveness of prayer or the, the reality right. of the, the Shroud of Turin being Jesus' burial shroud. That's right. Um, now that, that's so a, definitely those... an important distinction. And, and I don't think anybody that I know of, at least, uh, um, makes the claim that, um, even, even within the, camp, the accommodationist camp, nobody makes the claim that science cannot reject specific uh, claims, empirical claims by religious people. So, for instance, uh, if you say the Earth is 6,000 years old, uh, then you're just wrong. It's, you know, geology tells us otherwise. It's billions of years old. And so that is definitely a claim that if, you, if made by a religious person is, in fact, refutable directly on the basis of empirical evidence and our scientific understanding of how the world works. But the thing is, that contrary to what the purists seem to think, that rejection of that specific religious claim does not amount to a rejection of not only religion in general, but even on that particular version of religion. And the reason for that is a nice little concept called Last Thursdayism. Last Thursdayism is this idea that I've actually heard by uh, uh, being proposed by, uh, proposed by several creationists that, well, you know, the world looks like it's six, you know, four billion years old, and it looks like there is a lot of fossils in, in, that have been scattered throughout for a long period of time. But in fact, God created it last Thursday, and, and it put things in, and arranged things in a way uh, that, that makes it look like the earth is old, just to test your faith. Now, that statement completely rescues even, even fundamentalist religious claims, and there is absolutely nothing that a scientist can say about that claim. Now, it's a silly claim, and it, and, it, and it also creates very serious theological problems. You know, what kind of God would go around scattering fossils just to test your faith? But on scientific grounds, it is absolutely impossible to attack, because it doesn't matter that you show to that person that the fossil record is more consistent with 
uh, billions of years of evolution. It really simply doesn't matter because the guys just told you that all, that all of that is an illusion. Uh, if you think about it, this is kind of analogous to the radical skepticism in philosophy. You know, this idea that, you know, we're, we're in our studios here in, in Greenwich Village and we're looking at each other. And at some point, however, you can make the argument that you don't actually, that I don't actually exist, that I'm a figment of your imagination. Right? Well, there's nothing I can do to prove to you that I exist. I could question why you would want to imagine being here and, and having to, doing this kind of thing uh, uh, rather than being somebody else, somewhere else and, and having fun. But the fact is you couldn't reject that claim because there's no physical evidence that could possibly convince you. Even if I get up and slap you in the face and you feel pain, that pain is still created inside your brain. It could still be a matrix-like illusion. There's no empirical evidence at all that prevails against radical skepticism. And the situation is similar, I think, here. Right. So a lot of our commenters uh, addressed the idea of last Thursdayism, and I think they made sort of two main uh, responses to what you were saying. The first is that uh, that it's a straw man that scientists actually think last Thursdayism could actually be disproved. Um, Mintman says, all serious scientists, and certainly people of the caliber you, Massimo, are arguing against, know that there's never 100% certainty and that last Thursdayism is irre- irrefutable. Um, but if you say that it, it makes the God question philosophical, then no question in science can be answered by science, as the same ad hoc cop-out can be formulated for everything. That's and exactly that, right. And that, that is, is exactly right. That is exactly right. And that's one of the things, actually, the, the, the commenter has hit the nail right on the head. Uh, what I think people like Jerry Coyne and I suspect to some extent Richard Dawkins do, in fact, is to overestimate the epistemological boundaries of, of science, it is to broaden them beyond, beyond what is reasonable. The commenter is precisely right. You could make the same exact argument against anything that science does, um, which would be a radical critique of science. Now, nobody would take that critique seriously, but that doesn't mean that the critique does not hold in sort of in in a, in a, uh, in a matter of principle. So then, wouldn't you say that if science, to the degree that scientists can disprove anything, they can disprove last Thursdayism? I mean, that's what we mean by disprove. We mean it contradicts all of the other knowledge all the other well-substantiated knowledge that we've learned about the world. No, I think the point, well, I think the point is, is, is subtle but, but important. Uh, science cannot disprove last theorism. Science can disprove the specific, uh, uh, argument, the specific position that the Earth is 6,000 years old. That one we can do. But if somebody uh, plays the last Thursday, Thursdays more a variation thereof card, that's where science stops. Science cannot say anything about that sort of that sort of solution or that sort of critique. It's not a limit of science. I mean, a lot of my colleagues, unfortunately, take this as saying, "Oh, this is somehow it, it, the implication is that it's a fault of science." It's not a fault of science. It is a limit, I suppose, in the sense that what these kind of arguments tell us is that science, because, precisely because it is based on empirically testable hypotheses, cannot address fundamental metaphysical issues. You know, science has to take certain things for granted, one of which is the existence of a physical reality. You cannot prove the existence of a physical reality via science. You have to take it for granted. Uh, now, somebody could say, well, that's a limitation of science. Okay, it is, but you know, we don't get off the ground with science unless we do that. So we just, just like in mathematics, you have to start with axioms that you cannot prove. Well, the existence of a physical reality is something that you have to take for granted within science and within, within empiricism. You cannot prove it uh, with that system, with that approach. So you'd agree that, that the supernatural claims are, are no different in, in this problem from any other claim that science tests? Well, what is, no, there is a distinction there between the specific claims 
about the supernatural. Again, those can embed, some of those can be rejected by science. And then there is the broader claim that is more of a metaphysical claim about, oh, well, but there is a supernatural out there. And the supernatural out there cannot be touched by science. What we can touch is, is to say, look, if you stay within the empirical ground, what you're saying is silly. But as soon as you leave the empirical ground, that's where st- science stops. Okay, so, well, that was another common uh, thread in the, the comment section, that a lot of commenters felt that, that the idea that there are people who, who think that science can, um, can support what's called philosophical naturalism, right. yes, that, that there is nothing but the natural world. There's no such supernatural realm um, out there. Um, the commenter said that no one, no scientist really believes that. Um, uh, Coyne, in fact, who you cited as, as one of the purists, uh, on his blog, he says, as I've said ad nauseum, not every form of faith is incompatible with science. In my New Republic article uh, in, from 2007, I claim that pure deism, which accepts a hands-off God who doesn't intrude into the workings of the universe, is absolutely compatible with science. The problem is that hardly anybody is a pure deist. It's when you get into theistic faiths, those in which gods tweak the world from time to time, that we find the incompatibilities. Yeah, but see, that, that's, uh, um, that's actually, interestingly, a straw man that Cohen himself created, because the, the, the discussion has never been about deism. We all agree that science can't do anything about deism, and in fact, deism doesn't say anything at all. I mean, deism is, this, is the idea that there might have been some kind of conscious creator of the universe, uh, but that after the universe was created, the said creator retired or went on a island take a vacation or something it doesn't do anything at all it doesn't intervene in the universe well we all agree that science has nothing to do with that kind of claim we also all agree presumably that there are very few deists around it's not like deism is exactly a, 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 a very popular movement among modern modern religions deism is really not the problem neither epistemological nor, nor for science nor nor for philosophy the problem is of course are specific claims by by religious people, especially the one that deal either with intelligent design in, in general or in particular with young earth creationism. And again, I think that what Jerry and, and to some extent I think, I think Dawkins don't seem either to appreciate or seem to willfully ignore is that there is a subtle but important distinction between saying I can reject specific claims on empirical grounds, but that rejection comes with a caveat. And the caveat is if, in fact, I agree without proof that there is a physical universe and agree without proof that what I'm doing is working without the, the epistemological limits of science. The religious person can always say that he's going to reject those, those assumptions. He's, he's going to say that God can do by definition whatever he wants, and therefore whatever... Um, empirical observation you make is compatible with the idea of the existence of God. So you, can, you, you, you mentioned a minute ago intercessory prayer, right? So there are, there are studies that show that intercessory prayer, not surprisingly, doesn't work. Does that uh, amount to a rejection of the idea that there is a God that answers prayers? No, because God can, by definition, answer prayers whatever the hell he pleases which means that God presumably is realizing that there is an experimenter who is doing an experiment, a controlled experiment, right, on God, and God is pissed off at the experimenter in question, and so he says, you know what, I'm not going to answer any of these prayers because you're doing the experiment. As soon as you stop doing the experiment, I will, in fact, answer prayers. Now, that's a position that a scientist can't do anything about. There is no way to test it. 
Um, it's, it's the kind of claim that is simply outside of the boundaries of science. I don't think that's a limitation. You know, that's a bad thing for science. I think it's great that science sticks to empirically verifiable claims. What is not verifiable in the case of religion is the entire framework, is the supernatural framework is not verifiable. Specific claims you can, you can address. But the religionist always has this trump card of saying, yeah, but God wanted it that way. And he can change the empirical results anytime he wants, and there is nothing you can do about it. And you can invoke that sort of supernatural, I don't know, trump card yeah. for anything. It doesn't even have to be religion, I That's think. Right. Um, one commenter, Kel, said he was recently listening to a podcast uh, that had a debate between a homeopath and a skeptic. And one thing the homeopath tried to do was dismiss the calls uh, of a lack of causal mechanism by decrying the skeptic as a materialist and saying that, you know, the, the skeptic couldn't appreciate that homeopathy works, but not through a material agent. And Kel says, it's easy to see what was done here. It's completely abated any scientific criticism by putting the causal mechanism beyond the realms of science, same as the last Thursdayism mentioned above. That's right. That's exactly so, right. Now, there are two answers to that, right? One can say, well, no, that's unfair. You have to stick to the rules. Uh, you know, you, can't, you cannot use that trump card. Uh, that's not going to convince any religious person. That's not going to convince any, any uh, homeopath. And it's not going to convince anybody who f- believes in psychic powers and all that. I mean, there, there is an equivalent uh, uh, with psychic powers and, and, and things like uh, telepathy and clairvoyance. Right? There, is the, there is an old argument. Whenever, sci- whenever skeptics check, try to check, try to test for paranormal phenomena, there's an old argument that says that the skeptics themselves produce vibes that somehow interfere with the paranormal phenomena. And so you can, every, every time there is a skeptic around, you can't test them. Well, okay. isn't that convenient? Right. Now, you could, the, the, the only sane reaction to that is to say, look, then, then we're simply not talking the same language. You yeah. are not, you're obviously not interested in a test of what you're, what you're claiming. So that's the end of the discussion. You cannot, the skeptic cannot go on and say, well, let me test that claim. That, that skeptics have a negative influence. You cannot do that. But is, I'm not even sure that it makes sense to say that we have we can't say it's we can't show that it's wrong because it's not even necessarily coherent. I'm not even sure that it's a coherent thing to say that something exists but not in the material world or Precisely. It, it's causal but not in a scientific way. Precisely. Like, isn't so that just not even wrong? That's right. So when you're talking about things like you're not even wrong, or we're talking about things like incoherence, then you are into the territory of philosophy, not of science. You're doing, ter- you're doing epistemology or you're doing philosophy of science, uh, which is the main difference that I have with Jerry and, 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 Richard, and Richard Dawkins. Let me go back to your point about naturalism because the, the serious aspect of this discussion uh, comes up when comes up when whenever we are talking about people like Ken Miller, for instance, who is certainly not a young Earth creationist. You know, he's a, he's a Catholic and he believes in some sort of version of the Catholic God. He also is an evolutionary biologist, and so the question with the accommodationism, the the charge of accommodationism is, you know, why is it that that um, uh, people like myself and, and Eugenie Scott think that it's a good idea to have to interact with people like Ken Miller, who, by the way, I criticize. In, on our blog, on, on Rationally Speaking, there are a couple of posts uh, by me uh, uh, criticizing Miller and, and Ken actually responded to those, to those uh, claims. So it's not like criticism of these people is beyond Paul. But we need to understand what the difference is. So when Eugenie Scott and I claim that the important distinction about science is the one between mythological naturalism and philosophical naturalism, what we're saying is that all you need to do in order to be a scientist is to use the methodological assumption that there is no supernatural. You don't need to prove that there is no supernatural. You don't need to experiment on the supernatural. All you need to do is, look, 
If the thing behaves supernaturally, then there is nothing I can do in terms in terms of, sci- of science. All the science is concerned with is the natural the natural world. Um, you could, you can also be, of course, if you if you wish, a philosophical naturalist. A philosophical naturalist, such as myself, and incidentally Eugenie Scott, is somebody who says. Yes, but I actually go a little beyond that, and I take the science-informed position that, in fact, atheism is the, rational, is the most rational view of, of, of a metaphysical view that one can hold. But it is a metaphysical view, and it's not necessary for science. So Ken, Ken Miller can go on and do his science, even though he's a Catholic, and he's doing nothing wrong. He's a, he's a perfectly valid scientist who's doing perfectly valid research. We don't want to get to the point where we're sort of implicitly mandating to scientists to being atheists, because that is, first of all, self-defeating, and second, on, on purely pragmatic grounds, and second of all, just unnecessary. It's not justified on, a, on philosophical uh, grounds. One last point, and then we're going to have to wrap this up and move on to the picks. Um, when people talk about science, uh, I've noticed that they, they might mean two different things by it. They might mean the scientific method, the process of scientific inquiry, um, or they might mean the body of facts of knowledge that that process has resulted in. So, even if the facts aren't contradictory, you could argue that the assumption that the scientific method is the best way to reach truth about the world is incompatible with the assumption that you don't need the scientific method or really any empirical evidence at all. So, yes, a, a good way to uh, put what you just said is something that was uh, uh, written by Richard Feynman, uh, you know, Nobel Prize physicist for his work on, on quantum mechanics. Uh, and uh, I believe we can find the quote around. And, and he had a very good view of what the real conflict between science and religion actually is. is. Is this the one from The Meaning of It All? That's right. Uh, uh, okay, so I, I do have it here. He says... I do believe that there is a conflict between science and religion. The spirit or attitude towards the facts is different in religion from what it is in science. The uncertainty that is necessary in order to appreciate nature is not easily correlated with the feeling of certainty in faith. That's right. And I think that Feynman said it much better than, than uh, any of these people who are now going around uh, crying accommodationism uh, ever has. <laughs> and on that note, we're going to wrap up this part of the podcast and move on to the Rationally Speaking Picks. Welcome back. Every episode, Julia and I um, pick a couple of our favorite books or movies or websites or whatever tickles our rational fancy. Let's start, as usually, uh, as usual, with uh, Julia's pick. Thanks, Massimo. Uh, my pick is a book. It's called Conversations on Consciousness, What the Best Minds Think About the Brain, Free Will, and What It Means to Be Human. It's by Susan Blackmore. Um, basically, the book is a series of interviews about 20 interviews that she conducts with some of the top names in um, in consciousness research, and that includes uh, philosophers as well as uh, neuroscientists. Um, David Chalmers, Daniel Dennett, um, Stuart Hameroff, um, all of the, the people that you've heard of around here. And, um, and Susan Blackmore herself isn't an expert, but she asks uh, a lot of good questions, and she asks the same questions again of, to see that you can compare the answers that are given by uh, all the different respondents. Um, and she touches on a lot of the really sort of fundamental, really tricky questions about consciousness. And the interviews are interesting because it makes it clear how tough it is to talk about the subject, or at least how tough it seems to be for, for even the experts. Um, so, for instance, she uh, touches on the uh, idea of the, the zombie 
uh, the philosophical zombie. This is a common thought experiment. Um, yeah, so she asks, David Chalmers, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, David Chalmers, thanks. Um, so she says, does it even make sense to imagine a, uh, a being whose, whose brain works exactly like ours, but it's an automaton? There would right. be no sort of sensation of consciousness experienced by anyone. It would just, just, you know, you'd have the physical workings of the brain going on, but no consciousness. And some of her respondents say, um, yes, that makes sense. And, you know, that, that's a way to separate out the, what happens physically in the brain from what we mean by consciousness and qualia. And some other respondents say, no, that doesn't make any sense. That's an incoherent thought experiment. If you have those physical processes occurring, then you have consciousness. You can't just separate that that's conceptually. Right. In fact, uh, our, our listeners can find a commentary on David Chalmers that was published on Rationally Speaking, the blog, um, a few months ago because I happened to go to the um, – City University of New York Graduate Center, where Chalmers was giving a talk. It was not about zombies uh, in that particular case, um, but um, but he's famous mostly for these uh, uh, thought experiments you're talking about. And I actually count myself among those that think that the, the thought experiment is in fact incoherent. That I don't think that Chalmers has actually made any point at all. But uh, but that could be a whole separate show on on just consciousness and what is called the hard problem of consciousness, which is what Chalmers was trying, I think, rather unsuccessfully to, um, to address. Yeah. And um, one, one takeaway that I thought was kind of comforting uh, from one of the interviews was that what we, you mentioned the hard problem, which is how, how could an understanding of the physical processes of the brain ever really make us feel like we understand what produces these sensations, these qualia, they're often called. I know you hate that word, Massimo. Um, yeah. But no, you'll, no. you'll like this, though. One of the respondents, and I can't remember who it was, said, you know, this isn't a unique problem. We've had plenty of problems in the history of science where the physical explanation that we got didn't make us feel satisfied. Like when people want to know what light is and they, you know, were told oh, these waves of electromagnetic, they, it didn't feel like they're like, no, but that doesn't explain what, why I see this, this light. I have this sensation of light and it sort of the explanation and the, the sensation sort of finally collapsed into the same thing as people just got more f- comfortable with the explanation. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. And but there's also another point that is relevant to this whole discussion of consciousness and qualia, which is the qualia is the term uh, that philosophers used for, for first personal, uh, first person experience of right. things like colors and, and sounds and things of that sort. And I think that, that to some extent that goes back to the, to the um, very basic question of well, what, do we, what do we mean by an explanation? Right. Because, you know, for instance, let's take the case of color. I mean, we understand very well the physiology of color and the physics of color. I mean, we know how uh, human beings and other animals perceive color. Uh, But if by explanation one means, well, but all of that... um, uh, knowledge about uh, physiology and physics and so on and so forth doesn't recreate the, per- the first-person subjective experience of, of seeing a color, you know, the color red. Well, of course it doesn't. That's not what an explanation is. An explanation is not a first-person experience. A first-person pers- first experience is an experience, yeah. which is not the same thing as an explanation. That's a good point. Should we move to the second uh, pick? Yeah, what's your pick, Massimo? Well, since we were talking about earlier uh, about accommodationism and purism uh, as, far as, as far as philosophy of science, I suppose, is concerned, uh, and one of the people we mentioned was Eugene Scott, the uh, director of the National Center for Science Education. Then my pick for, for this week is, in fact, the website of the National Center for Science Education, which is ncse.com. Uh, it's a great resource for any, anybody interested in, in evolution in particular and the evolution uh, creation intelligent design debates, but it's also expanding. So, for instance, I, I'm just looking at uh, at the uh, current incarnation of the page and it turns out that there are several articles about global warming now 
Why are there articles about global warming on a site that is usually devoted to evolution? Because it, it turns out that global warming deniers are beginning to use the same language and the same so-called logic that evolution deniers are using. How so? Uh, well, uh, for instance, they, they use um, uh, there is a House Concurrent Resolution uh, 1009, um, says the website, under consideration of the South Dakota legislature. The borrows language from anti-evolution legislation because it encourages teachers to present, quote, a balanced and objective view of global warming um, and related issues. Uh, this is exactly the, the same kind of language that creationists use when they want to introduce legislation that uh, you know, sort of balance, balances the, the views on evolution. Uh, it's, there's, there are a lot actually, there are all parallels, in fact, among several sort of denying uh, movements. And, uh, one can de- be denying evolution, one can be denying global warming, one can be denying the efficacy of vaccines. All of these have uh, uh, fundamentally the same thing in common. They have a willful rejection of the best findings of science at, at the core for ideological reasons of one, one kind or another. They could be religious or not. And they all tend to use the same kind of strategy and the same kind of sort of language. It's, it's, somebody should do a study, of, a, a, a sociological study about this, this sort of thing. Uh, but in general, I think the, the National Center for Science Education is a great resource. Uh, people should go there, visit the, the, the site for the information, the wealth of information that they provide, and also to support them. Because we have to remember that the National Center for Science Education, which has a staff of you know, a few people, uh, is... For, for all effective purposes, the only organization nationwide that um, that fights the, the good fight against creationism, and against that you have to balance the existence of multi-million-dollar uh, per year budget um, uh, operations, such as the Discovery Institute, uh, the Institute for Creation Research, and so on and so forth. It is a very uneven battle. The uh, creationists have a lot of money um, and a lot of resources available, and the other side uh, tends to rely on outlets like the National Center for Science Education, and they definitely need all our help. Right. In fact, it was a professional PR firm that came up with the slogan, Teach the Controversy, um, and sort of helped craft the whole media strategy of the creationists then later redubbed the intelligent design uh, movement that is then it seems being being copied by by other movements as well so exactly yeah i think we can uh, wrap it up at this point yeah are- so that uh i guess that concludes another episode of rationally speaking join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening. <laughs>